Now entering Nerdist.com. Welcome to the Writer's Panel. I'm Ben Blacker, the creator and moderator of the podcast. I created the show because I wanted to talk to writers about the business and process of writing. I've had more than 400 writers on the show, so go back and check the archives. I'm sure you'll find more creators and more shows that you're interested in. I'm a writer myself, having written with my partner, Ben Acker, for Supernatural, Puss in Boots, FX's Cassius and Clay, among others. We've also written comics from Marvel, Image, Dynamite, and more. We created a show called The Thrilling Adventure Hour. Maybe you'd like it. Go to thrillingadventurehour.com for more info. Let me know who you want to hear on this podcast by following me on Twitter, at Ben Blacker, like the color, only more so. Uh, And follow me on Tumblr at writerspanel.tumblr.com. And if you enjoy the show, please leave a review on iTunes. It always makes me feel good about myself. guys incredibly sweet good-natured funny smart unbelievably collaborative not oh absolutely not at all precious about his own material like that this is like you have to do it it's my way or the highway mm-hmm. he's not like that at all um but the guy's got an empire to run absolutely i mean it's like i don't know how he does it you know we get him when we can mm-hmm. you know he was i think with the first season of the show he was a little more engaged you know um mm-hmm. Which was hugely helpful because we were trying to figure it out. I think now he sort of feels like he's sent the kids off to college. Mm -hmm. It's like, you know. That's great. It's like, go, live your life. That's great. I can't imagine that. I'll see you next summer. Yeah. I can't imagine that's easy for him. So uh, it's nice to hear. Uh, I don't know. It's funny. It's weird. He, He really sees himself as a comic book writer. Really? That's still. That's what he is. That's what he does. Maybe a year or two ago, yeah. I can't remember. And and, talk. and I guess yeah, I mean yeah. I guess that's the impression. Is he he had, just does what he does. He does. That's his passion. It's what he's wanted to do. It's what he's done since he was like fifteen, sixteen, seventeen years old. Um, he still writes Walking Dead. He still writes Outcast. He yeah. edits and publishes all the other titles that that Skybound does. Yeah. Um, uh, he's he will be the first person to acknowledge how grateful he is for the su- television success he's had. You know. But he doesn't see himself as a TV producer, you know. It's not, or even a TV writer. Hmm. It's not. He had a conversation with me once where, during the early development stages of this show, I I would always try to defer to him, like Mm -hmm. in meetings and stuff. I would be, well, make sure Robert's happy with this, or see what Robert thinks. Or, and and at the end of one of the meetings, he sort of pulled me aside and said, "Dude, it's like I write the comic book. He does this as one of his (laughs) gestures. He does this a lot. I write the comic book. The comic book is my thing." You're the showrunner. Go run the show. 
That's and I was really like, healthy. <laughs> I, and I was like, oh, okay. I, I just wanted to make sure, you know. And I think he, ta- I think he deals with Scott Campbell the same way. Yeah, you know, from what I understand, yeah, that's um, great. Uh, you know, so yeah, it, uh, I, I mean, I talk to him all the time. I text him, right. we exchange emails of and course. stuff like that. But he's no, he's not in the writers' room on a daily basis. Oh, that's neat. Well, good for you guys. <laughs> uh, all right, you ready? But right. Like, so I'm not, I shouldn't be like. Yeah, oh, man, we've like, we've had everyone in here. Yeah, <laughs> I lay on the, Let, exactly. lay on the floor on, the, well, on my back only, on the floor. Yeah. It melts. Yeah, <laughs> I've never seen it, but I've heard the I've heard the yes, story. Yes, me too, and and I love the story. Yeah, <laughs> my favorite David Milch story is that, it, which I'm sure is apocryphal, but I just desperately hope that it's true. Is that on NYPD Blue they were shooting a scene where they just had no pages, the script wasn't mm-hmm. delivered, and they were just standing there on set waiting. And Milch finally came down and said, "Okay, here's what's going to happen. You say this, you say yes. this, you say this, you say this, and you say this. There's the scene." I've heard that, yeah, about NYPD Blue, yeah. about Deadwood, right. a couple of shows. Yeah, that I he would wonder. just come down and dictate the scene because he, That's you know, amazing. He's the character. I've met him a couple of times. Really? I don't. I've never. I've never met him. He's a little larger than life. I'm sure. Yeah. I mean, but God, always interesting. Yeah, and a always brilliant writer. I Absolutely. Mean, and even his failures are sort of spectacularly brilliant yeah. failures. There's always something thoughtful and interesting. Going exactly. On. Yeah. Dude, was any of that previously recorded? <laughs> We, we might keep some of that. In. Okay, we'll see. You, Just, I, well, I you trust you. Well, yes. And look, I trust you guys to. That was I was I was talking under the impression that that was off the record. <laughs> so, but I did say nice things about Robert, right? You did. So, yeah. so it should be we should be good. Um, you guys, Chris Black is here. Uh, hello, thanks for being here. I'm delighted, thrilled to be here. Uh, Chris is the showrunner of the new Outcast. It's obviously based on Robert Kirkman's new comic. Uh, coming to Cinemax, when does it premiere? June 3rd. Okay, and we should mention... So soon, like uh, like less than a month, three weeks now. Uh, if people are in Los Angeles uh, and want to see it on June 1st, yes. days before it premieres, um, come to the Hollywood Forever Cemetery, starting Which at sundown. sounds weird, but is actually a, they do film yes. series there all the time. You sit out on the lawn and they project it on the side of one of the buildings. It's really fun. It seems like a great place to... to premiere the show absolutely and robert kirkman will be there some cast members he will, will be there. he will will you really be there? wow i'll be there but i'm all right you know maybe i'll get a chance to see robert and talk to robert <laughs> based on what you've just told me you're talking to robert all the i time. do talk to robert all the time but he's you know like as as we were just discussing he's a very busy man yes. he's you know um but that's so that's june 1st uh in los angeles at the hollywood forever cemetery you can see the first two episodes of Outcast. Yes, correct. Uh, and then it premieres properly uh, on June 3rd. Yes, which I believe is Friday. Yes. Um, congratulations on that. You have... Thank you. You've worked on a lot of things. I, I, they are eclectic credits. <laughs> I, you know, it's... Uh, it, and I get that in meetings all the time, you know, that, that people look at my credits and they go... They'd say almost exactly what you just said. Wow, you've worked on a lot of things. But, I mean, it's funny because you look at them and it's like we were talking about like weird science, the syndicated weird science and sliders and a lot of these uh, syndicated shows, Star Trek Enterprise, but then Desperate Housewives. Yes. You know, it's people don't really have careers like this anymore. Because well, that's a couple. TV is different. TV is different. I mean, there's a couple. There's there's a couple different things that you you sort of are approaching there. One is one is the 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 sort of eclectic nature of my credits, which is when you're early in your writing career. And and I I was a genre fan. Have always been a genre mm-hmm. fan. I mean, I grew up 
you know, you know, devouring paperback science fiction books. You know, I mean, all the the, the cliched classics. You know, Heinlein and Bradbury and mm-hmm. Clark and Asimov and all that stuff. Um, so it certainly wasn't like I, I felt I wasn't doing material that I was excited about. Um, I was, and Weird Science because it you know has that component that magical component to it that the guys create their mm-hmm. computer genie their sexy computer genie um <laughs> which was the original title yes exactly sexy computer genie <laughs> um but there was this impression that it was a science fiction show when in reality it was basically a half hour single camera comedy mm-hmm. uh and a lot of the people who worked on the show went on to become sitcom writers i mean very successful talented very funny yeah. people it was one of the great writing staffs that i'd worked on in my career but i came out of that job with people thinking I was a science fiction writer. And the next job I got was Sliders, which I did for two seasons, which was kind of on the downslide of that series, sadly. It was like, I mean, it was a great experience and I really loved working on it, but it was after Fox had not picked it up and it moved to the sci-fi channel. They had moved it down from Vancouver and, and slashed the budget. So we really struggled. I think we did good work on it, but we it was hard. Mm-hmm. You know, and then from that I got in the Rob Tappert Sam Raimi camp and which was a blast. And that those were the heady glory days of syndication, (laughs) you know, when you would get, you know, 40, 60 episode orders for a show. Yeah, which doesn't exist anymore. And, you know, uh, and I worked on um, the show that they were doing called Cleopatra 2525, which was just silly, ridiculous, you know, futuristic warrior babes in metal (laughs) bikinis. But it was a blast. And they shot it in New Zealand. And I did some scenes and... Uh, and then, and I wound up, you know, I did a, a USA show that was this kind of short lived bounty hunter show, but then I wound up for three seasons on Star Trek, which was a wonder. I mean, from a kid who grew up being a, a passionate Star Trek fan, I mean, to be able to go and work at Paramount and go onto those stages where there was so much history and you walked onto those sets and they were just gorgeous mm. sets and you would walk onto the bridge and sit in the cabin chair and everything was lit up and there were people running around with, you know, phasers and pointed ears and you were like, oh my God, it's like, this is, this is, I've died and gone to heaven. But it, the show was a challenge. I mean, it, it, it's not the best regarded. I Again, we did our best. I think we did really good work on that show. I loved the cast. This I was loved Star Trek Enterprise. Enterprise, yeah. Uh, who, who was running the show? It was being run by Brandon Braga, okay. you know, and Rick Berman, who, you know, who was still kind of the overseer of the franchise mm-hmm. and had been since, you know, Gene oh, Roddenberry right. uh, uh, had handed it off to him when he was ill in the first couple seasons yeah. of Next Generation. Um, and I, again, I'll, I'll say it again. I, we all came to that job wanting to do great work and mm-hmm. wanting to do something special and wanting to sort of, you know, preserve the legacy of Star Trek and at the same time sort of reinvigorate it and do something new, which was why they made it a prequel mm-hmm. series. Oh, but, um, it was a challenge, you know, it, it, the, the franchise to some degree was running out of steam. Uh, and it wasn't until several years later when the m- new movies came along that it really, that was what I looked particularly at that first J.J. Abrams movie, and I go, that was what we wanted to do. I mean, it was what we were trying sure, to of do. of course. Uh, I, don't, I mean, look, and it comes to, and, and I, I don't know Star Trek, but from, from any of the Wait, things. Wait, what? Yeah, sorry. It's my, my one big wow. nerd blind that's spot. A, that's a pretty big blind it's spot. It's a big one. Dude. Um, but, so, but what my point was. Um, what was your point? <laughs> I have no idea. Um, that, you know, no, nobody sets out to make a bad show. Not yeah. that this was a bad show, of but course. like we, you've worked on shows as have I, where like yeah, I'm not thrilled about the final product. Well, you have to bring your A game. You have yeah. to, otherwise you're just a hack. Otherwise, Absolutely. you're just taking a paycheck to do shit. 
and you, you you have to look at everything. And I've worked on shows that were not successful shows, mm-hmm. both financially and artistically. Mm-hmm. But you have to go in and say, I'm going to do good work. I'm going to do the best job I can. I want people to love this. I want people to watch it and be entertained. Do you? How do you find the thing to care about? And and maybe I mean if you can be specific on a show that you know you weren't sure about how did you what was well, the thing that you found to care it's about? such a cliche I mean it sounds like such a pat stock answer but it's, you got to care about the characters and 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 it was it's like to go back to my eclectic credits it's it's people ask me I I get this in meetings all the time wow how could you you've done Star Trek and Desperate Housewives it's like how do you write those they seem so different and it's like well. They're not, they seem so different. They're not that different. I mean, it's like it's – writing is – you know, not, not to oversimplify it, but writing is writing. Drama is drama. Conflict is conflict. And it's like if it's playing out on the bridge of the Enterprise or it's playing out on Wisteria Lane, if you have characters that you're invested in, mm-hmm. who you're excited about and you want to go on a journey with um, – you know, the storytelling follows. And that's, and that was why I felt, and like one of the best jobs I ever had in television was working on the show uh, called Ugly Betty, mm-hmm. which was so, was not a show that I had ever watched. And it was one of those years where I was, it was, um, it was shortly after the writer's strike and uh, whenever that was 2008. And uh, I had done very briefly worked on the show Reaper, which was mm-hmm. a, just a blast, and just some of my favorite people in the world. And yeah. I was so proud of that show, and and um, disappointed that it didn't succeed. Um, well, it did succeed, that it didn't live longer yeah. in, on television. I think a lot of people were disappointed. It, it was a great show, and those uh, you know Tara and Michelle who created it are just just the yeah. best, and just That's enormously awesome. talented, and just some of the best people you'll ever want to work with. And the cast was great, and the writing staff they assembled was was phenomenal. It was so much fun. It was such a fun environment to work mm-hmm. in. I mean, you couldn't wait to go to to work every day to sit in that room what, with those people. What made it? Fun. I mean, what makes a room good for you? People had enthusiasm for it. It goes. I think it goes to what you were just asking, mm-hmm. which is um, you were excited to tell stories with these people. That it was. It was. You couldn't. You would get ideas in your off hours, and and you couldn't wait to get back in the writers' room to tell everybody. Mm-hmm. You know, and right. and uh, there was. I worked with a producer years ago who used to say, "Every job, there's two P's." There's the project and the people, and sometimes you have great people and terrible project, and sometimes you have a great project with terrible people. And if you get both, it's like hang on to the job for as long as you can, Uh, and that was what Reaper was. It was just this funny, brilliant, inspired, you know, delicious piece of material that Tara Michelle had created with just the smartest, funniest, most irreverent, lovely group of people that you would ever want to sit in a room with. Oh, that's so good to hear. Let me ask you, so as a showrunner, mm-hmm. how do you try to create that environment for your writers? Now, you've run a number of different shows, uh, and, and Outcast most recently. Well, Outcast, I, I would say Outcast, it's funny, I, I have had a long, semi-distinguished career in television. Um, this is the first show I've technically actually run. Really? I, I've run shows sort of as the, the sort of like de facto showrunner, mm-hmm. where, you know, you would be... 
you know, at the right hand of the king, you know, and you really and, and right. you know, uh, run the room. Well, yeah, you would run the room. Uh, the, yeah. Show running is a tremendous amount of responsibility and you're pulled in a hundred different directions by, you know, you have to deal with the network and the studio and you do casting and post and, you know, yeah. and everything like that. And your day is just filled and you do Nerdist podcasts and not that I'm <laughs> very compla- important, not that I'm complaining. <laughs> it is very important and I'm not complaining. I'm thrilled to be here. It's like the people are interested enough in what we're doing to want to hear about it is, yeah. is fantastic. Um, but so you, you, as you work jobs and you, and you sort of acquire more tools in your toolbox, you know, you can go to post, you can sit with the editor, you can go to casting and you can make those decisions or at least bring those choices to your boss. And you can run a writer's room and you can sit at the head of the table because, you know, writers are at times an unruly bunch and everybody's opinion is valuable and valid, but at the end of the day, someone's got to say, you know, I'm, I'm closing the discussion. We're doing this. Right. You know, and that's kind of what I think to ask your question of what makes a good showrunner. It's, it's like I think you have to create an environment where everyone feels heard. The hardest thing for me when I became sort of the official showrunner, the hardest thing for me was not doing the job, the job I knew how to do, mm-hmm. all the nuts and bolts, the mechanics of the job, um, how, how to be in a writer's room, how to break a story, how to write a script, how to rewrite a script, how to do casting, how to do post, how to do pre-production, production, all that stuff I had been doing for years. I knew how to do that or partly or knew how to work with the people who knew how to do it right. better than me. Yeah. Um, but the hardest thing was learning how to be the boss. The hardest thing was being able to look at a room full of passionate writers and saying, I hear the pitch you're pitching me. I see the passion that you have for this pitch. I'm not going to do that because I don't like it. Yeah. And and it can be as simple as that. It, you, you have to be, you know, dad. You have to be or mom. It's like, why, 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 why are you doing that? Because I said so. And the, the, that was the hardest thing, you know, because That's you might funny. have – Two or three or four. Every writer at that table might have a great idea. Mm-hmm. You can't do them all. <laughs> you you got to pick one. It's like which direction are we going? Which one are we going to do? And the 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 hardest thing for me to do was to learn to say no, to look people in the eye and kill their children. Um, but then the other dis- great discovery that I made was they were cool with it. Right. It's like they get it. It's oh, like it's the job. Yeah, it's, especially if they've been around yeah, a little bit. They might be grumpy or unhappy for right. five minutes, and it's like I think you're making a mistake. Maybe I am. You know, I, it won't be the first time yeah. that that I and and I will be the first person to go back and say it and say, you know, that idea that I fought so forcefully for. I just came back from editing and saw the scene, and oh my god, that was the biggest ter- worst mistake I've ever made in my life. Yeah. I should have done what you wanted to do, but. It was someone had to make the call. Absolutely, yeah. Let me, as as the showrunner, let me make that mistake. Yeah, let yeah. me make that mistake. And uh, and I think knowing the the key to having a happy room, or at least a functional room, um, is everybody gets heard. Mm-hmm. Everyone gets yeah. respected. You know, you don't treat people with disrespect. If they had, there are no. There's the 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 joke is there there are no bad pitches. Trust me, there are plenty of bad pitches, <laughs> and a lot of them come from me, and they come from. But, but the fact is, you should feel safe to pitch your worst pitch. Yeah, you should be able to throw anything out there that's, because that's sometimes I, I can't tell you how many times you sit in a writer's room and someone says, "Okay, here's the bad version of this," which is how you cover yourself. Yes. That's how you always that's like every pitch. Yeah, if everybody, <laughs> if, if if you know, then you can back away from it if everybody hates it. You go, hey, "Here's the bad version." Of this. <laughs> yeah, but everyone gets not this but. Yeah, <laughs> not this but. It's like uh, something like this, or or. Sometimes you go, how about that? 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, yeah. I like that. Let's do that. That's you know, funny. there's because the craziest things you swing for the fences, and then if it's too big, you dial it back. Absolutely. But uh, I, I find that I prefer that technique to sneaking up on it. Uh, that absolutely makes sense. Yeah. I mean, you only have so much time, right? Right. I mean, you, with these people who are you're counting on to help put together the show. Well, and counting on to help—that's the biggest thing. Yeah. Is is everybody needs to be invested? Everybody needs to understand that that um, they are contributing to the success of the project. And I look at that room and I and I try. I don't want to be a dictator. I, I, I'm like, I need your help. Help me. Yeah. Help me make this good. Help me make this as something. All our names are on this. Yeah. To that end, um, you know, I've worked on staffs where the showrunner made the target very clear. Mm -hmm. And that was the best room to work in. Right. And I've worked on staffs where either the showrunner or sometimes the network made it very unclear. So how do you... Talk about Outcast specifically. Well, the the great How thing do you make that clear. Well, we have, and I've worked on the staffs too. And the hardest jobs, and I I don't want to name names or point fingers, but the hardest ones were were the one where they kept moving the target. Yeah, you know where you would pitch something either to the showrunner or the network, and they would then decide that they didn't like it. Oh, that's not working. It's like so. Well, let's try this instead. Yeah. And so then you would pivot. The whole room would pivot. Okay. Well, now we're going to try to do this, and then they go. Well, that's not working either. And it, you're right. It's like if people – then people start going, I don't know what we're doing. You know, I don't know what's good. Yeah. I don't know what's good and, anymore. And that's so frustrating yeah. for staff. It's unbelievably so, frustrating. So coming into that first season of Outcast, how, how did you and Kirkman start to make that target? Well, we had – because we had Kirkman. Because mm-hmm. here's – that was what made it easy or easier mm-hmm. is we had source material. Yeah. I mean he – this was – I uh, I came on. Robert had already written the pilot. Uh, he he sort of wrote the pilot. It was before I had showed up on the scene, right. but he had written the pilot kind of in conjunction with developing the comic. You know, they sort of it wasn't oh, like walk right. it wasn't like Walking Dead where yeah. there was a comic title that had been out for years that then they sold. This was something that he had sold the idea um, as a television series as he was developing the the That's comic right. at the same time. So they were sort of coming up together, and but Robert was always very clear on what the show was. I mean, he was very clear on not necessarily on every specific detail of every episode, and there's not a one-to-one correlation from episode yeah. to comic issues. There, there, there. Sometimes are, are sometimes the specific issue of the comic might be roughly what the A story of the specific episode mm-hmm. is, but but generally not. You're just trying to sort of follow the narrative. Uh, through line that he has laid out yeah. for the larger arc of the of the season in the series, but that we had that it wasn't like you know we just had a pilot and then we all sat down on day one and said okay what's the show you know Robert knew what the show was yeah. you, you, you knew know. where these characters were yeah going. He knew and the tone was. exactly he knew the tone he knew the world mm-hmm. he knew the people. Um, I went through the casting process with him, and we saw these people, you know, come to life in in, in our actors, and we got wonderful actors. Yeah. Um, and so, it you you sort of saw it coalesce in front of you, and so there wasn't this, you know, showing up on the first day of school and then saying, "Okay, open your books to page one." You know, right. it was like we, you know, we knew what the curriculum was before yeah. we before we started. And and Robert, I think, has a larger game plan. Again, not worked out episode by episode or season by season, but if if the show is going to run, you know, in you know, success, I don't know, 
know, five, six, seven seasons, we should be so lucky. I think Robert knows. I think he knows the end game. You know, that's great. He knows the big arcs. Yeah. yeah. And whether or not the writers know it. Right. You know, I, I think that's it's nice to know that someone has that idea. Yeah. There's there's a safety net. Yeah, for know. sure. Um, how big is the staff? And and what I'm really curious about is how you put them together. How did you find them? How did you what did you read? What were the interviews like? Well, you, we're in staffing season. We're now, in staffing so. season. Yeah. Well, it's the same Good to hear. The, the, the same way you do any show. And you I mean, you know, the process, I assume it's always worth. Repeating. Yeah. To, uh, to some degree, um, uh, you get uh, the first thing I look for is people I know. Mm-hmm. It's like it's like who do I know? Who it goes back to what you were saying before? Who's going to help me? Mm-hmm. Well, this was actually I wanted. I was hoping you would say something like this because right. again, you've worked on a number of different shows with a lot of great writers, right? And you know, you'll go through and say, who do I know? Who do I like right. working with? Who can help? Right. This guy's off on this show. Right. The, she's off on this. Well, show. and it's it goes to an argument. Not to send this conversation off in that direction. It does go to the argument that's going on in Hollywood now about mm-hmm. the issue of diversity. And it does to some degree become something of a fraternity, you know, where, uh, you know, the first – I mentioned this a a little while ago, the Weird Science, the first job that I worked on uh, was being run by these two two buddies of mine. I went to USC film school, two buddies of mine from film school who I then worked on and off with for years. Tom Speziali, who's now co-running The Leftovers with uh, Damon Lindelof. I think I've worked on, I don't even know, four or five shows with him. Hmm. You know, And it's like because you, you, there is a comfort level and you know when you're given this tremendous responsibility of we're giving you millions and millions of dollars uh, in this very valuable property that people are excited about and you, you have a sense of responsibility and sometimes you do – I'm not saying that this is right, but you do – you take the safe bet. Sure. It's like – Well, you want to make so much of it as easy and knowable as you can. Exactly. You're trying to, you're trying to take the variables out of mm-hmm. the equation as much as you can. Yeah. Now, that said, you do make a really aggressive um, effort to bring new people in. To, to bring a diversity of voices in, um, you know, our, this is one of the first writing staffs I've worked on in my career. There are actually more women in the room than men, hmm. which I'm one, I, I think it's a good thing. I, I, and it just makes it, I, I would say, is a somewhat pleasant, you know, place to, <laughs> to work. It's what, a, uh, what kind of material were you reading? Did you only read scripts? Well, yeah, well, I'm usually open to reading anything. I do. My favorite thing to read are pilot scripts. Mm-hmm. Original pilot Original pilot sure. scripts. Because the, the, I think the trend of writing a spec piece of material is kind of past. Mm-hmm. I don't, I, you know, for years it was like, well, pick your favorite show or pick a successful show. You know, I wrote, I got a lot of work years ago off of a spec Sopranos script that I wrote. Well, let's stop right here. What was your Sopranos about? Um, my Sopranos was, there were, there were a lot of things going on, I, and I literally wrote the script like 15 years ago. <laughs> the, I love hearing this, because people don't really write specs of existing They don't do it anymore. anymore. But, but back then, 15 years ago, yeah. it was what you did. Oh, five years ago. Yeah, it was like you, you wrote a Law and Order, or you wrote a yeah. CSI, or you wrote a Sopranos. Um, my my uh, Soprano script was uh, that it was. I wrote it between the first and second seasons of the show, and so there was a whole storyline where Uncle June was in jail, was in prison, mm-hmm. um, and he ends up killing a guy in prison, sort of accidentally. But it, Cred. but it, it um, basically ups his cred on the street. Uh, and then there was a, the other plot line was that uh, 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 AJ, the uh, 
there was a teacher in his high school or his middle school that uh, all the other kids hated. And uh, his classmates come to him because they know his father's in the mob and ask him to put a hit out on this teacher. <laughs> Uh, uh, it was fun. It was a good script, and it got a lot of attention, sure. you know, um, and it got me meetings. Mm-hmm. And But I found that in, in reading, I much prefer to hear someone's original voice. Mm-hmm. I want to hear their fresh idea, their but, original idea. It's an interesting thing to me, and it comes up on this, this podcast every once in a while. Mm-hmm. You know, you want to populate your room with these – Fresh, interesting voices. Yes. But ultimately, their job is to mimic the voice of the show. Correct. So reading well, that stuff absolutely makes sense, and, but you're kind of taking the gamble that they can do that work. Right. Well, it's, it's, it, it is, and th- I think there's value to both. Mm-hmm. And, and here's my feeling is I can always put a script in the voice of the show yeah. if I need to. Um, I don't like to. I don't like to. It's just Tom Speziali once told me, he says, nothing makes me happier than finding someone who can write my show better than I can because yeah. it just makes my job easier. Um, and if you can take your ego out of the equation, you know, um, there are certain, you know, show runners in this business, nothing terrifies them more than someone who can write their show better than them, you know, because it, it makes them redundant in some way. But look, it, at the end of the day, if I need to, I can sit down with the script and I can take a pass at it, and I can go through it, and I can go, this voice is a little off. This doesn't sound like Reverend Anderson. This doesn't sound like Kyle. Megan wouldn't talk this way. Um, and that's usually pretty easy. It's just you take a dialogue pass at it. But what I want from original voices is people who are bringing you ideas that you didn't think of. Yeah. It's you the know? room work. It's the room work. The writing yeah. work. Well, and that's the fun of it. And everybody, yeah. every writer approaches it differently. I don't like writing. <laughs> um, which sounds weird coming from a professional writer. Uh, you'd be surprised. It's uh, not fun. Four hundred of them. Yeah, I would say three ninety nine. Say that it's not fun. <laughs> I mean, it's work. It's not. I know people who just have stories in them that they just have, that are just like you open the spigot and they just pour out and they can't wait to get to their typewriter every day or their word processor every day to 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 start. You know. You, you know, uh, unleashing this torrent of brilliance. It's like, it's like for me, it's a, I, the, the old joke is no one enjoys writing. Everyone enjoys having written. Right. Um, I do take great satisfaction in having done something well. You know, at the end of the day, you sit back and go, that turned out really good. I'm very happy with that. People like it, and it turned out to be a good episode, and I hope people watch it and are entertained by it and feel that we're doing justice to, to Robert's vision and all of that. I mean, um, but the process is excruciating. You know, I, I much more enjoy the social aspect of being in a writer's room, breaking the stories mm-hmm. and having everybody just pitching ideas. That's why I'm not a playwright or a novelist or a feature screenwriter sure. because writing television is very social. Absolutely. Very, know, collaborative, endeavor, very, very collaborative. Very collaborative, very social endeavor. Yeah. You get to go in. My wife always used to joke, especially when it was funny when I was working on Word Science. She was like, you guys are having too much fun. <laughs> you know, and it was like, when are you going to come home? And I'm like, oh, we'll be, we're almost done. It's like, <laughs> right. you, you know. It's 10.30. Yeah, it's like, uh, <laughs> but you you enjoyed. But my, my philosophy has always been, if you're going to spend that much time sitting around a room staring at these people, 8, 10, 12 more hours a day, depending on the show, um, you should like them. Yeah. You should. It should For be sure. fun. It should be entertaining. And there's and you get in fights and you have disagreements and not everyone gets along. And that guy was a jerk. And it's like you can't. I mean, it's it's big. This this is a business that rewards big personalities. Mm. 
you know, big creative personalities, people with big ideas who express them forcefully, you know, are the people who are rewarded in this business. And rightly so, I think. But but it, you know, it, it creates a lot of, you know, headbutting sometimes. Yeah, for sure. Uh, tell, tell me about some of these early rooms. And, and I mean, obviously doing a bunch of these syndicated episodes. Right. Uh, breaking them. Producing them must have been a crash course for you. It was well, and it was the the variety of it was weird yeah. too, because it was like and, and and incredibly instructive. And I think to some degree the business has changed now that you don't get that diversity of experience in a lot of ways the way mm-hmm. you used to. It's like I started out Weird Science was written like a sitcom. Mm-hmm. It was we had a big staff of very funny people who would How sit. Big? It was I can't remember. It was maybe. For a half-hour show, maybe it was like as many as eight or ten people. Uh-huh. Um, uh, but, you know, <coughs> you would pitch ideas and we would write and rewrite in the room. Mm-hmm. You know, you would put the the script up on the big TV screen. Oh, wow. And someone would sit at the keyboard and drive and everybody would shout jokes out and shout pitches out. It and, really was that sitcom. Yeah, it was That's very much written like a sitcom. And a lot of the writers were, you know, had come out of half-hour and then went on to – you know, very successful careers in half hour mm-hmm. after that. Um, and then from that, I went to Sliders, which was this kind of micro-budgeted, you know, show. It had a writing staff of like two, you know. There was the, there was the show – or actually, well, there were two writers – there was the there was the showrunner and a and a senior level producer, mm-hmm. and then we had a staff of two. It was myself and this a guy who you may know named Mark Scott Sacree, um, mm-hmm. who wrote the Twilight Zone Companion. Oh wow! Um, <laughs> uh, who's a very interesting, talented guy. But um, but that was like that was it. We had like twenty some odd episodes to do. Wow. Um, but you freelanced episodes out, which mm-hmm. is a, probably half of that season was written by freelance writers who would come in, you would spend a couple days with them kind of hashing the story out, and then you would send them off and they would come back with a script. Oh, interesting. Um, And there used to be, and those days are gone, no one freelances anymore, but there used to be people who had very successful careers, just they they never staffed. Yeah. They just lived as freelancers, you know, that there was enough work that they could could sustain it. So was it... Basically, the three, four of you in a room with these freelancers. Yeah. So that, I mean, all of a sudden, you were sort of management. Well, and they you, would pitch. By and, dint of being there, you were like, you knew the show as well as the creator of the show or the show. Yeah, well, or may, maybe not so much in that case, but it was like <laughs> in some cases. The um, But the other thing, too, is they would pitch. And that that's sure. another thing that, that has gone away. Yeah. The last show I, I worked on that had a policy where people could come in and pitch episodes was Star Trek. Oh, sure. And they were well known for that. They were well known for that, and 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 they ultimately, uh, and it was this. I think this really well intentioned egalitarian system Mm -hmm. that ultimately wound up becoming sort of unsustainable, um, for a couple of reasons. One is that we, the staff, we spent so much time hearing pitches. It chewed up. It took so many hours of our day. That we couldn't focus on the actual task of That's writing funny. and producing the show, um, and also they just Paramount just kept getting sued. The 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 fact is there are a lot of um, familiar storylines that you can pursue for a Star Trek episodes, sure. you know. And how many people are going to come in and say? Um, 
you know, the Enterprise goes to a primitive planet and the crew are mistaken for gods. Okay, how many times are you going to hear that? I mean, you know, it's 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 been done. It's an old school pitch. It's like it's kind of a trope. It's like people pitch it. So if at some point in the future we ever do an episode like that I – mean, we never did an episode like that. I'm just using it as an example. <laughs> but then suddenly uh, people come out of the woodwork and start suing Paramount saying they stole our idea. Yeah. And at a certain point, it just became untenable for the show and the studio to – and it was sad because it was really – it as you say, it launched a lot of writers' careers. It connected the show with the fan base. Mm-hmm. People felt invested in it. They felt they had an open door. They felt they had a dialogue with the the creators and the stewards of the show. It was a wonderful thing, mm-hmm. and it was kind of sad that it became – from a business point of view, it became unsustainable. Yeah. For, for kind of crappy reasons. For crappy reasons, yeah. yeah. I mean, for, for, for just logistical reasons, yeah. not for creative exactly. reasons. Exactly. Yeah. Um, so, so what did you take from some of these rooms that you've been – any of the rooms that you've been in that you can apply to your, your own show running? Well, I think it was the, 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 the best showner, showrunners that I worked with were, uh, were the guys who – and women who listened, mm-hmm. you, know, you know, who, who were collaborative, who, who – who heard everybody's ideas and, um, you know, made it a safe space. And that's, I'd say, the one thing that I try to do and and make everybody responsible. You know, everybody's mm-hmm. responsible for the show being good or the show potentially being bad. You know, that it's like you're, you, you all have an equal say. We all have an equal say in this. And when I sit around a writer's table, I you know sort of like, and like we talked before about how I select a staff, you know, you read scripts. You know, you look at just pure writing talent. This person wrote an amazing script. You want to meet with them, have a conversation with them. Am I going to enjoy spending time with this person? Are they smart? Are they funny? You know, are they even-tempered? Are they, you know, is it someone that you're going to be able to, to, to work with? So all of those things, you know, become part of the part of the mix. Um, but the best showrunners that I've worked with are the, are the guys who allow those people um, – to be a part of the process that, that I, I feel like, Oh, what I was going to say, I'm sorry. I lost my train of thought for mm-hmm. a second is what you, you know, you, you know, these people, you know, you know, the writers who are younger and experienced writers, you know, the people, for instance, like I, I was saying before, I like to hire people that I know and I can trust and I've worked with before, which somewhat regrettably ends up with a lot of, uh, staffs end up being very clubby. Uh, I'm not saying I'm excusing it, but I understand it because mm-hmm. I'm as guilty of it as anybody. Um, uh, so you know, sort of know you look around the table and you know who's who, but I don't assign titles. Mm-hmm. It's not like that writer's a co-executive producer, so that person should know more. That person should have more responsibility. Mm-hmm. That person's a staff writer or story editor. I know they're a little green. I know that's only their second job, so I'm not going to expect as much of them. Um, I don't look at it that way. I, I mean I just look at everybody as writers, mm-hmm. and everybody's um, pitches are equally valid everybody's ideas are equally should be equally respected and uh i would never take say a green first time writer and send them to location expect them to run the set Mm -hmm. um without some supervision and some help but at the same time i feel that the person should have that opportunity you know i was curious about that yeah they should learn you should learn the process because i my feeling is is you're not just being a writer you're being a tel- you're learning how to be a television writer producer mm-hmm. and you should in and everyone's goal someday is to pitch and create and sell their own show and run their own show yeah. 
And so you should learn how to do it. You should learn – you'd have a relationship with production. Mm-hmm. You know, you should know because the, there's always this tension between create the writing side and the producing side. It's like the the writers, you know, just send them scripts and they go, um, you know, I don't understand why they're giving us such a hard time. Why can't they just do what we're asking? And the you go to production meeting and they're all like, why are you crazy writers sending all the shit we can't do? <laughs> you know, so and, – and that's just kind of baked into the system, yeah. you know. But what I try to do is break down that barrier as much as I can and I take writers and I say, go. You should go. To South Carolina, which is we shoot our show, um, and I'm not going to throw you in the deep end of the pool without a life jacket. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you should go on the scouts. You should go to the production meeting. You should go to casting. You should go. I mean, soup to nuts. You should you should make this your episode. What is your expectation of a writer on set or in pre-production or in, as part of any of those uh, well, aspects? I you know I don't expect the writer to necessarily be in charge. Mm-hmm. You know I don't think that's their responsibility. My I look at a writer on set. Including myself, and it's funny because I'm still getting used to the fact that when I show up, suddenly I'm the boss. They're like, "Oh, Chris is here. The showrunner's here." It's like you know, I, I don't even think of myself in those terms. But uh, you're you're there to answer questions. I, I mean, that's kind of you know, they they look to you, the actors or the director, will look at a scene that maybe the intent wasn't clear to them. You know, you you sort of I, I feel like you guide with small corrections. Mm-hmm. You sort of nudge it this way or that, or it's like you know you don't go marching on a set going no no no, it's not what it's supposed to be. You know, it's like you know if you see something on the monitor or in rehearsal that doesn't seem right, that they've sort of missed the intent of something, mm-hmm. or they're trying something different that you you're going look guys that's a good you know effort, but that's I don't, that's not what I want it to be. You just, or, or the room talked about it. Or the, the room talked about that. it. Yeah, exactly. That, that you nudge them of... you nudge them back. Yeah. You you just try to nudge them back on on course. It's not about being a tyrant. Mm-hmm. It's not necessarily even about being the boss. It's there I it is it comes back to this notion of it being a collaboration. Not just with the the members of the staff sitting around that table, with everybody. Because the end result of this is not a script. Mm-hmm. If the, if all you wanted to do was write and create scripts, you, you you can go home and do that. You can have boxes full of scripts under your desk. It's like the end result is to put something on the screen. And so it's a collaboration with everybody, with the writing staff, with the production team, with the actors, with the directors, you know, who the directors ironically in television come in and the, the one person on set who's tasked – with putting the vision of your show on the screen is the person least familiar with your show, <laughs> yeah. you know, because they, they parachute in a week before to do their prep and, you know, um, so you, your, your job is to sort of be this den mother, you know, to some degree to make sure everyone's working together. Mm-hmm. And, and the, the movie oftentimes gets made on the day, mm-hmm. you know, you, that's the other thing too, is about being precious about the script it's like, you know, some writers get very frustrated. Well, they're not doing it the way I wrote it. To which my response is, well, was it better? You know, yeah. then it's a win. You know, yeah. if it wasn't better, don't let them do it. <laughs> right. But if it was better, give them the freedom to find it. But it's hard for a writer to know when and how to speak up. Well, it depends. On, it does depend on your level. And, 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 and if you've been doing it as long as I have – you know, on as many different shows in as many different environments, 
um, it is a little easier for you to say pull the director aside or have mm-hmm. a sidebar conversation with an actor. Or, but the key to it is all prep. The key to it is you know it's like what they say: lawyers never ask a question you don't know the answer to. Um, is the key to, to not running into those situations on set is to be meticulously prepared. You know. Uh, not to rule out the happy accidents, but you know, you you rehearse if you can, if you have time. I have an open door policy with the actors; they get the scripts as far ahead as I can get them to them. And it's like if you have questions, I don't want to hear about it on the day. Mm-hmm. I don't want to hear about it when everyone's standing there and you're waiting to roll. And then I get pulled aside, going, "Yeah, I didn't, you know, I didn't understand this." Well, you've had the script for a week. <coughs> you know, call me. And, and they all know that, and they do. Mm-hmm. And they text me. Patrick Fugit texts me all the time. It's like, <laughs> you know, it's like let's have a conversation about it. So when, you know, so when we get there, it's it's clear, mm-hmm. you know. And the same thing with the directors, especially directors who don't know the show, haven't done the show before. You tone what they call the tone of the film meeting. You you as you know, you go through the script scene by scene. Line of dialogue, line of dialogue. It takes hours, at least when I do it. And it's like because you, you, you want that director to show up on that day, know exactly what the intent was, um, and uh, be able to convey that intent to the actors and the crew um, mm-hmm. about this is, but this is how it should be. Mm-hmm. Um, but you also want to be open to what they're uh, – a lot of times you know, you're in those meetings and the director was like, oh – I didn't realize that that was what the, the subtext of this scene was. I thought it was about this. And you go, hmm, well, it wasn't about that, <laughs> but that's kind of cool. Maybe we should make it about that. Mm-hmm. You know, it's why I say it's like the movie's not done until it's done, you know. Absolutely. And, and, and um, I understand writers can get very precious about their words. I mean, uh, and some, uh, you know, look, I'm not David Mamet. It's like there's there there are certain writers probably whose words need to be respected. Mm-hmm. You know, um, I'm not necessarily one of them. I consider myself to some degree more of a of a, a, a writing producer than a pure writer. I do I do write a lot, but it's like it's it comes back to just what I said a minute ago. It's it's, it's it, at the end of the day, no one gives a crap about your script. You know, I mean, some people do. Some people get them online and they want to read them, and right. you know, and they but, sell but them in stores. Speaking. You know, Quentin Tarantino, you know, <laughs> buying, sure. binds them and sells them. <laughs> um, you know, and the, and they're he's a wonderful writer, and they're wonderful pieces of writing. Mm-hmm. Um, I, that's not what I do. You know, I make TV shows, mm-hmm. and that's at the end of the day, that's what matters. Is people are going to sit at home, and, you know, I hope on their big. 50-inch television in the dark and not necessarily on their iPad, but they'll watch them the way they watch them um, and and be entertained by it. That's a very practical attitude towards making a product, um, which, you know, sounds cynical, but... Well, I, hope, I, I hope it doesn't sound too cynical. I hope it doesn't sound like it's like I see well, it as a... Ma- I, it. I hope I don't see it. I hope people don't interpret that to mean that I see it as like a manufacturing no, process. No, no, no. Because it is an artistic process and this, it is a creative process. I think it's a really healthy attitude yeah. towards the process because yeah. it is, like, so much of it is collaborative, so much of it is disposable, right. so much of it right. is, you know, so many voices trying to make this. Well, it's one of the nice things about the... the, the um, avenue that we have to do the show in now, which is doing it. And this has been, I think, a large contributor to what people talk about, this new golden age of television, you know, that started, you know, with the sort of Mad Men and Breaking Bad. And, and it really goes back 
to this idea of doing smaller orders. Mm-hmm. You know, it's kind of how we started this conversation. It's not doing 22, 24, 26, 28. I did 28 episodes of Cleopatra, 25, 25 wow. um, for one season. The one and only season. Um, <laughs> was it only one season? Oh, it was like only, well, episodes? it was weird. It was like, it was, that was a whole weird thing. <laughs> was it was like, because it was originally a half hour and it was part of what they called this like action pack. And yeah. so it was bundled as an hour. So it was our show in this, um, uh, a Bruce Campbell show called Jack of All Trades, mm-hmm. and they sort of they syndicated them together as a package. But then they canceled Jack before us, so then they made <laughs> us expand the show into an hour. So they were like that one season. There were twenty. I think I think if I recall correctly, twenty two half hours and six hours. Um, that would never happen. Yeah, it was bananas, and it was. And there were two writers. It was me and <laughs> a guy named Carl Ellsworth. Uh, who's a very very talented guy and uh, went on to a very successful feature career. Mm-hmm. Wrote the movie Red Eye and um, some other stuff. Who's great? Um, but yeah, I mean, we freelanced a lot of scripts and we just wrote them a crap load of them ourselves. And so the, on those shows. Oh, but I'm sorry to, yes. to say this: this the idea of this this sort of golden age of television is when you didn't have to do as many. Yeah. When you didn't have to punch them out <laughs> like. You know, widgets on an assembly line. It was more like making a handcrafted, you know, artisanal <laughs> cheese. You know, if you, if you only if you have a year to do ten, it's going to be better than if you have a year to do twenty six or twenty two yeah. or thirteen or, or sixteen. Time. It's like you just can spend more time on them, and it's one of the nice things about working at a, a premium cable outlet, a place like you know Cinemax, which is a sister company to HBO. I mean, their attitude is always it's like it's not done until it's good. Mm-hmm. You know, they don't force you to chase false deadlines. It's yeah. like it's ready when it's ready. Notoriously it's, so. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yes, well, that's a whole other conversation. But, uh, but they're great partners. I love them. They're yeah. incredibly collaborative. It does seem like you guys are making the show you want to make. Yeah. Oh, and they're that's very great. they're very supportive of that. That's terrific. Yeah. Um, I'm curious about, uh, speaking of all this, this, you know, producing on set stuff, when did that start to happen for you? Was it were you going to set on some of the early Well, that's see that again it goes back to your question about who did I learn from yeah. or how did I learn? Um, it goes back to the very first job I had on on Weird Science. They would let me go to set. I didn't have a ton of responsibility because I didn't know what the hell I was doing, but they were like you should go. Hmm. You know, it helped that at the time they were still shooting shows in Los Angeles. Hmm. So we set was a, you know, a two minute golf cart ride from the writer's office. Yeah. You know, it wasn't a five hour plane trip. It was, you know, we, we wrote and shot that show on the universal um, lot, but you could go. And, and the, the showrunners actively encouraged that and, and to go to the production meeting, not necessarily at an early stage to contribute a lot, mm-hmm. But to to learn, to, 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 to soak it up. And so then I, I was l- fortunate to have a series of jobs, a series of bosses. In fact, most with, – with only a handful of exceptions, almost all the showrunners and bosses that I worked with had that attitude. That's great. You know, that they wanted you to learn it, you know, okay. for – a couple of reasons, one being that it made you a better writer-producer, made you better at your job. Uh, and, two, it just made their lives easier. It meant they didn't have to do everything. Mm-hmm. You know, oh, once you proved to them that you could handle it and not fuck it up, you know, then it was like, you know, okay, I can send Chris to set because yeah. I have to be in editing. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. It's helpful to them. Yeah. Um, it's funny, though. I've, I've heard this more and more frequently from show, people who are becoming showrunners. Right. You know, they've been kicking around in the business for a while and saying, like, 
I want to continue learning. I've been learning my whole career. Right. And I want to give the opportunity for yeah. the writers coming up to yeah. learn. I mean, it's it's nice to see people taking care of Well, yeah, yeah. I, and I find that very – There's they, they do have um, in the Writers Guild the showrunner training program, which is the more sort of formalized version of that. Um, it's run uh, by a guy named Jeff Melvoin, mm-hmm. who be- believes that passionately yeah. that you that you pass the knowledge on. Um, and I, I think, look, I'm, I'm I've been do- writing television for twenty some odd years. Um, I, I and I love what I do. Um, I'm hoping to continue to do it for as long as the industry will have me. But at the same time, I don't begrudge the people coming in. You know, I don't resent that there are young, ambitious, talented people who want my job because you know what? They, they're going to earn it and someday yeah. they're going to get it. I'm not ready to give it to them yet, but it's like – but there's no reason I should be afraid of that and there's no reason I shouldn't encourage them and help them. Mm-hmm. That's, that's nice to hear. You know. um, <clears throat> what has been – how did you learn to pitch in a room? Just – experience you know i mean just practice mm-hmm. it's ner- it's it's what did you discover about it especially early on i'm curious um you know what is what is your style of pitching in the room well my style of pitching evolved and it's funny it makes me nervous i don't like to, now to this day i've pitched hundreds of hours of television in, in my career and i still hate it i hate it because there's a reason that we're not actors there's a reason that we don't perform that we don't sit in front of a camera is because and, and i have enormous respect for actors because they are able to expose themselves in that way to sit in a room even a friendly room of of producers or executives or agents who you know and who you know are pulling for you you break out in a sweat it's excruciating <laughs> i don't know what your experience is it's ex- oh, it's absolutely. it's, ter- it's so terrifying awful. it's you know and the worst part is when you're sitting in the lobby waiting to go in <laughs> in the sort of intimidating you know especially if you're at some place like HBO which is the marble palace with right. the giant you know game of thrones posters <laughs> hanging from the ceiling you know and then now you've got to go in and impress these people <laughs> um, but there's just no substitute for practice practice mm-hmm. practice practice the more you do it the easier it comes um, the key is to tell them a story <laughs> I think I made mistakes early in my career about not being prepared enough that I thought, oh, what I'll do is I'll engage them and I'll make this a conversation. And we'll come in and we'll chat about it and we'll talk about what they expect and what they want. They don't want that. They want you to come in and tell them, this is my show. This is why it's great. This is why you should buy it. Um, and uh, the more confidence you have and the more sort of enthusiastically and forcefully you can make that argument. I think so much of pitching is not selling the story, it's selling yourself. It's selling the confidence that you have in the story and that it's going to work, and they're idiots if they don't want it. You know, right. Um, missing out. They're missing out. How can you not see how great this is? And um, and it really is enthusiasm and confidence. And obviously it's got to be a good story and something they're interested in. But it really is. It is a lot of presentation. And it comes with practice and you get better at it. Mm-hmm. The more you do it, you get better at it. I practice. I mean, I it's ridiculous. I stand in front of a mirror and I do it. Do you? I, oh, yeah. Do totally. you script it also? Yeah, oh, t- I totally script it, which for years I didn't do because I, w- I wanted it to feel more sort of impromptu. But for me personally, and everybody, I'm not saying this is the way you have to do it. This mm-hmm. is the way I do it. I do totally scripted. Mm-hmm. And, and they don't mind. It's like I sit there with my pages in front of me, and I'm certainly well rehearsed enough that I can look up and make right. eye contact, and you look around the room, and you engage your audience. But I just go through it a page by page and, and keep it short. How Fif- short? 15 minutes. Yeah. 20 And that's for tops. an hour, right? Yeah. You're pitching hours. Yeah. yeah. Um, 
I, I find they fifteen minutes their eyes start to glaze over yeah. if you can't get to if you can't get to it. You know, if it takes you as long to pitch the episode as it would take them to watch the episode, sure. you know, there's, it's not a pitch anymore. It's so, like, uh, I mean, that seems so difficult to me for an hour long show, and you're not doing. Like it's not you're not pitching procedural shows either. Right. You're pitching sort of heavy mythology. Sort of mythology well, shows. you just gotta condense the storylines. This is what's going, and I'm not. I'm talking more about um, like pilots. Yeah, yeah. Or like if we're pitching an episode outcast, the, the pitches generally go a little bit longer. Sure. Maybe no, maybe upwards of like half an hour because you do sort of pitch them in more an detail. original pilot. Yeah, but I'm going into pitching a, in, in an original pilot. It's like say the pitch takes maybe 20 minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes they'll slow it down with some questions, you know, um, and you got to be prepared for that, which is why I like to have a script hmm. because it's really easy to get knocked off by a question. It suddenly, suddenly says, wait, wait, what? I'm sorry. Which guy was this? Is that the guy on the spaceship or the guy on the planet? And then by the time you sort of have answered the question and they're like, oh, okay, okay, I got it. I'm sorry. Go ahead. Then it's like, you're like, if I can't look back to my <laughs> script and pick up exactly where I left off, you know, I'm screwed. So, uh, oh, it's how, how much information do you give? Well, I get – it's it. funny. I And I can send it to you if you like. I got – years ago, a friend of mine, another really talented writer, guy named Henry Alonzo Myers, uh, who's on – who I worked with in Ugly Betty, and he and I wrote a pilot together. He's on this um, sci-fi channel show, The Magicians, now. Mm-hmm. He's great. You should have him in here. He's fantastic. He's like send a – He's a great writer. But he sent me this template that he had gotten from a studio one time that sort of laid out – I have it on my computer. It was like, here's how you pitch a, here's how you pitch a pilot. And it's like... It was from a specific studio. Yeah, yeah. It's like a CBS pilot. Yeah, I think it was it might have been Warner Brothers what, or something. It was Warner Brothers. That's um, right. um, and it was like, you, you pitch a teaser. Then you explain the world. You tell them who the characters are. You pitch the pilot episode in very broad strokes. This is the story of the pilot. This is what happens. Mm-hmm. This is what these characters do. And then you sort of conclude with, and the series is... It's like a five point. I may have those mm-hmm. specifics wrong, but it's like a five point pitch. Yeah. And Henry sent me this thing, and I was like, "It seems that seems so regimented. It's like it's like it's so it's going to be so scripted. It's not. It doesn't leave any room for kind of off." And he's like, "Trust me, it works." And uh, I sold three pilots in three years, <laughs> two of which got made. That's insane. Yeah, it totally That's worked. So funny. It was like because it just gives it. A structure, you know, mm-hmm. and, and it's like, and it sounds, and there's obviously like, you don't have to be slavish to it. There's, yeah. you, you know, you can, but it just gives you suddenly like here, okay, this is the important information. Mm-hmm. This is what yeah, they want to hear. It does help you highlight yeah, yeah, for yourself. Is, yeah, for yourself and for your audience. Yeah. It just is, it's concise, it's clear, it's here's my show, these are these characters, this is what's exciting about it, this is what you're going to see in your pilot, and here's why it's a TV show. That's the other thing you always have to remember is you're not selling a pilot, you're selling a series. Mm-hmm. You're not selling – you're not – you can have the best hour of television that they've ever heard in their lives. If you can't explain to them why it's five seasons of a show, right. they're, they're not going to buy it. Yeah. That's, mm-hmm. that's great advice. So. Um, let's uh, – before we wrap up, let's, let's talk about some of these shows that you've worked on. Uh-oh. Uh, because I, 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 you know, we, I don't usually just do don't this. ask about Poltergeist the Legacy. That's the only one I can't talk about. What was that even? <laughs> exactly. That's why I can't talk about. It. Um, and was this a freelance episode of Honey I Shrunk the Kids, the TV show? It, it was. It was because uh, Kevin Murphy um, and a couple of the other writers. Uh, Kevin Murphy, who's a wonderfully talented guy, he he just was running this show uh, Defiance mm-hmm. um, for Sci Fi Channel, and he wrote. He and his writing partner wrote uh, Reefer Madness, the Broadway musical. 
uh, they developed that show and then basically dragooned a bunch of the weird science writers into writing All freelance right. episodes. Of it, it. it felt like, and there were like we were saying, like there were a bunch of these shows around at the time. Yeah, and everyone, yeah, it was right on the heels of Weird Science, yeah. and they were doing a lot of those things. But it was fun. It was they. It was uh, Peter Scolari. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the episode I wrote was. Uh, Basically, like a sort of goof on 2001, where the guy put builds a um, home security system that basically takes over his house. Nice, yeah. that's really fun. Yeah, it was fun. It was cute. <laughs> um, tell me about your experience on Desperate Housewives. It was great. I mean, look. Oh, that was. was we talked a little about this at the beginning. Was um, I, I had come. I had been on Star Trek, and I had done like Weird Science to Sliders to. Cleo to Xena to Star Trek and I was like and I went to my agent at the time and even though I loved working in genre I was like you got I'm getting pigeonholed as this kind of writer and I said I had two requests for him at the time I said get me on a non-genre show Um, I I don't care what it is doctor show lawyer show Mm -hmm. cop show but I can't do spaceships uh, and get me off of UPN (laughs) Um, which is I mean it's funny to just for people who this was in two thousand three, two thousand four, two thousand one, I think. Oh wow! So well, that was when Star Trek started. I was especially two, then. yeah, two thousand. I was there for like two thousand one, two thousand four. Genre stuff on TV is now ubiquitous, right? But there weren't outlets for it then. Ago, I mean, Sci-Fi Channel was was not that old, right? Uh, they did not and have certainly a ton. the networks were not doing it. Yeah, the networks were not doing it. Sci-Fi Channel had only been on a few years, and they didn't have a ton of original programming, uh, a lot yeah. of which was not particularly good. <laughs> um, there was, um, uh, y- you know, there were some basic cable outlets, you know, like USA, and but no one was really doing genre. And UPN, UPN, Star Trek Enterprise launched the UPN network. I don't know if people oh, remember yeah, that or not. Right. It was because uh, prior to that, Next Generation and Voyager and Deep Space Nine had all been syndicated mm-hmm. shows. That's and right. Paramount, you know, who owns the Star Trek franchise. Well, you wouldn't know that because you don't watch Star Trek. I know who owns who. Oh, okay. I know my Hollywood lore. Yeah. All right. anyway, <laughs> we're going to talk to Hardwick about this. Um, <laughs> don't tell the boss. Uh, that, uh, you know, wanted to launch their own network and then used leveraged yeah. their premier franchise to to do yeah, it. Yeah. Um, and, but I had spent three years on Star Trek, which was, which was challenging to some degree, but also wonderful. But I was ready to like, I had to make this jump to mm-hmm. non-science fiction mm-hmm. network television. And it makes sense. You want to diversify. You yeah. want to show that, like you said before, I'm writing characters. Because then you can always go back to it. Exactly. That's the thing. Um, exactly. It wasn't like I was abandoning it or turning my back on it or saying this is beneath me or I don't want to do this anymore. But I just needed to expand my repertoire. And so he, my agent, uh, hooked me up and I wound up getting a job on this very short-lived NBC cop show called Hawaii. Mm-hmm. Um, we did six episodes and out. And it was basically – it was a cop show set in Hawaii. It was like no one remembers it. It was like it came and went. Um, notable in some part because it starred Michael Bean, you know, oh, really? who was great to hang out with and was in, and I was, cause I was like such an obsessive, like sort of Terminator aliens abyss fan to be able to just, like, just talk with him. And he would tell great war stories about working with Jim Cameron and stuff. Yeah. And, um, so that was fun. But then that went away in, in this, it's, it's funny. The, the conversation now kind of circles back to this fraternity of writers cause, um, Tom Speezy Alley, who was my film school buddy from USC, who had given me my very first job in the business on Weird Science, was at that point co-running Desperate Housewives with oh, really? Mark Cherry. I didn't realize that. And it, 
uh, they had just gotten their pickup for back nine. They had done their first th- 13. Hawaii got canceled. And Tom called me and said, we're really in the weeds over here. I need some help. Uh, he was basically, um, I know you can do the show. I know you can write the show. Mm-hmm. I know you'll be a help here, but I can't hire you on staff basically because at the time I didn't have the credits. Right. He said, but here's what we're going to – but it was like – but I never even would have gotten that opportunity if I hadn't done this brief stopover at NBC. I don't think I could have gone straight from Star Trek to the Desperate Housewives. Sure. But at least the ABC executives looked at my resume and said, oh, well, he did a cop show for NBC. <laughs> um, but what Tom said to me, he said – but what I'm going to do is I'm going to have you come in and do a freelance episode. And every episode of Desperate Housewives at the time was essentially group written anyway. Yeah. The show was very compartmentalized. I mean, because you had the four women characters, uh, and then on top of that, the sort of uh, unfolding mystery storyline, which that first season was why did Mary Alice kill herself? I don't know if not, a lot of your listeners watched. Um, There's an enormous uh, crossover. Uh, crossover to Desperate Housewives <laughs> or not. But anyway, um, so at most on any given episode, you might write one storyline. You might write mm-hmm. the Terry Hatcher story, and that would be maybe in, in a 60-page script you know, or less. The scripts were shorter, but it might be 10 or 12 pages would mm-hmm. be all you would be responsible for. And then other writers – it was a big staff of writers. There were like a dozen writers yeah. on staff. And so what Tom says, you come over, you'll um, write a freelance episode. Um, I uh, I know it'll turn out great because we have a great staff. Mark Cherry, who's running the show, will like you. And then I'll just kind of sort of grandfather you in. And that's basically exactly what that's happened. Funny. Was I went over, I spent two weeks sitting in the writer's room um, working with the staff, amazing staff of writers on that show. Yeah. Um, and uh, wrote my episode, or wrote bits and pieces of my episode, uh, and it was that first season of that show. It was it was a terrific episode because of all the talent involved, not yeah. because of any particular genius on my part, but because so many talented people were doing it. And the little office that they had sort of given me to to write, I just kind of never left. Um, and nice. then I was there for, for all, all the bounce of season one and then all of season two. Oh, wow. That's, that's a, a decent amount of time. Um, yeah. It was fun. And that was another show where it was challenging. It was mm-hmm. stressful. Uh, Mark Cherry, the creator of the show, is a very demanding boss of what he wanted from the show. But it was an extraordinary group of writers. And I have never been associated with anything that was that successful. <laughs> I mean, it was. I don't think people remember. That show was getting... It was enormous. Yeah, 25, 26 million viewers yeah. a week. It was a phenomenon. It really was. Really um, unbelievable. I'm curious to, about what you think when someone like Tom calls you and says, I know you can do this. Mm-hmm. I want to bring you in. Mm-hmm. What do you think you bring to the table specifically? Well, you always just try to bring whatever your talent is as a writer. I mean, you try to come in um, and and be able to sort of look at the show, appreciate the show for what it is. I think that's really key. Mm-hmm. Not try to make it into something different and say, I understand what this is. I understand why it's good. I understand why people like it, and I embrace that. Mm-hmm. Um, try to channel the voice of the show as best you can. But I think when Tom would say to me, come in, I know you can do this, I think to some degree he was looking at it, I I think he and I had worked together quite a bit at that point, knew each other really well, had written a lot of projects together. It's like he, he, for him, it wasn't even necessarily the creativity of it, of like, oh, I know you can do this, I know Mm -hmm. you'll be able to to channel Mark Mark Cherry's dark vision of the show. It was more like, I know you can help me. Mm Mm-hmm. Because the, 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 the giant crushing amount of work that I have to do here to do 22 episodes of the show and the time they've given us is killing me. Mm-hmm. And I know you can help. I mean, it seems like <clears throat> based on having written so many episodes of TV so early on, 
he must have, at the very least, been able to count on you as a fast writer who could deliver. Yeah, well, you've got to be. You have to be. I mean, that's the less so now. I mean, doing 10 mm-hmm. episodes versus 22 episodes, it is a slightly more humane and leisurely pace. Mm-hmm. You know, But even, to, like, leisurely but, is a week. Yeah. 10 days. Yeah, or 10, maybe. two weeks. You know, two weeks, I would say, standard for, for you know, if we're, if we're not under the gun. Uh, I'd like every writer to have two weeks, two weeks to write a script, I mm-hmm. feel is good. But it's not like, but you're right, it's not like writing a feature where you might have like a year, yeah. you know, or come back in six months when you have a draft. Right. You know, I mean, we would write, I remember writing episodes of, of, of it's probably not the best example in the world, of Cleopatra 2525. The show was a half hour long. The scripts were... 24, 26 pages long. You'd write them in a weekend. Oh, you must have banged them out. Yeah, you banged them out. and they Especially because there are only three of you doing it. Yeah, exactly. And then you would send them to New Zealand. And, you know, then they would evolve. Right. You know, you would – you but the but production was just – production is just a, 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 an insatiable script machine. Yeah. It's like they just – it just could eat – devours material. And it's like that. that's the pressure I think that people understand is once once the clock starts – once those people all show up, I mean, the reason TV shows, people go, why does a TV show cost $3 million or $4 million or if you're Game of Thrones, $11 million <laughs> or whatever? It's, it's not, you know, lumber for building sets. Right. It's people. It's time. Yeah. It's, you have a crew of 200 people, extremely talented, professional people who are paid very well for what they do. And you, they cannot stand around waiting for a script. You know, so yeah, it's hundreds of thousands of dollars a day <laughs> to keep that machine on its feet. Yeah. You know, and you can't, and when you say you got to be fast, yeah, you got to be fast. No one, the old joke is, you know, um, no one ever remembers a script was fast if it's not good. You know, <laughs> it's like, yeah, that script was really shitty, but he got it in on time. <laughs> it's like, just what we needed. But, but you got to do both. Yeah. I mean, you have yeah. to, you have to be able to, you know, Make a show special and and give the show runner or creator and the fans, the viewers, what they want and expect from it. Um, but it is a business. Mm-hmm. It, it, it is a business, and I take that business very seriously. I mean, we have a network who gives us tens of millions of our studio gives us tens of millions of dollars um, to go out and do and play and go play with the big toys. Yeah. And when I'm telling you, there's nothing. I I moved from Ohio to go to a film school in Southern California. Um, when I was a teenager, I have wanted to do this, not necessarily be a TV showrunner, but work in the entertainment business since I was 15 years old. And the fact that I get to do it, when I get to go to a set and they're pulling out all that shit and there's camera cranes and there's people and there's actors and it's like – it's like I, I feel like I should get down on my knees and kiss the ground every day that I'm allowed to do this. you know. And if, if the studio security – guard shows up one day and, and so it takes me out of the arm and goes, I'm sorry, we've discovered your 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 fraud, <laughs> Mr. Black. You're gonna have to leave. I'll be like, oh, I'm out. <laughs> it's like, you know, it was, a, it was a good run. <laughs> you know, I got it, you know, I fooled you guys for as long as I could and I, you know, thanks team, you know, it's like but it's a it's it's you know I, I'm not particularly spiritual. I'm not spiritual about it, but it's a blessing every mm-hmm. day. There's so many people who want to do this, who would kill to do this. Yeah. Well, and it's it's nice to hear that you know very honest, humble attitude. And I don't. Well, thank you. I, but I don't, and I just don't have tolerance for people who take it for granted. I just mm-hmm. want to slap them and go, "Look what you get to do. Look what you're doing. 
Yeah. You could be work, you could be, you know, you know, working in a coal mine. Not that there's anything wrong with working in a coal mine. You but you're, you're I don't want to offend any coal miners out no, no, there. Which also it's big, an honorable big crossover. Honorable, difficult profession. A lot of listeners. But but you know, I, I, I look at what I get to do and yeah. that they pay us the amount of money they do it, it's 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 obscene. <laughs> Well, don't say that. Okay, it's 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 not enough. They should pay. There us you more. go. Now we're talking. Um, all right, uh, Outcast, June third, June third, Cinemax. Cinemax. If you're in LA, come to the screening on June first. Please Hollywood do. For, it's going to be a blast. It's a great it's venue cool. to see movies in. It's going to be it really, really fun. It's I'm nice. going to be there. Kirkman's going to be there. Our actors, uh, some of them are going to be there. It's going nice. to be it's going to be a great time. Cool. And we'll just end by asking, um, what are you watching on television these days? What's getting you excited or inspired? I wish – it's funny. uh, I'm very excited Game of Thrones is back. I'm an obsessive Game of Thrones fan. Did Uh, you read the books? I did not. You know, I'm I'm one of the ones who didn't. And and I – now I understand that the show has kind of outstripped the books. I could, I feel like I can go back and read them because I didn't want to read them while the show was on because I didn't – I wanted to be surprised. Mm -hmm. You know, I didn't want to know what was coming. Um, uh, you know, Walking Dead, I love. The, the part of the, the funny thing is, is there's just too much stuff on. I'm so, I, I have two young kids and I'm, you know, working full time uh, running a television show. It is this new golden age of television. And people are constantly coming up to me going, <laughs> oh, have you seen the show? Right. Have you seen that show? I don't even I'll, know what that network is. Well, I was like, when the Golden Globes, and I know we're wrapping this up, but like the Golden Globes, um, the show uh, Mozart in the Jungle mm-hmm. won the Golden Globe for, for <laughs> best comedy. I was like, what the hell is that? I had never even heard of that show. And it's like, and so I went and watched it. It's fantastic. It's terrific. And it's <laughs> like, and there's, job, and there's like so, but there's so much stuff yeah, out there. Sure. It really is a wonderful time to be working in this business and and you know we, we talked about you know hiring going back to hiring writers uh it's it's you know it's a great time to be a writer because there's um i find myself going after people with experience and skill and talent and they're all working everybody's yeah. working there's so i don't even know what the number is something like 400 scripted shows something out there like it's insane there's so many opportunities yeah it's smaller staffs but a lot of opportunities exactly yeah um, well, it sounds like you've got a good a good show in your hands. A lot of good people. We hope so. I hope people. I hope people respond to it. I hope people like it. Everyone. A lot of people worked really hard on it. We're very proud of it. Great. Thank you for being here. Chris. Thank you for having me. Now leaving nerdist.com. dot <laughs>